Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current, kind of, only for another few days, PA student. I'm your host, PAK, and today's episode, I'm going to give you three simple rules so that you don't look like an asshole on your very first day of your surgery rotation. Uh, So we're going to go through that and give a few more tips and tricks on my surgery rotation, which was my very last rotation of PA school. I finished it like, I don't know, last week uh, and I'm done. I'm done, you guys. I did it. I did all eight rotations. I did all the dumb paperwork that I needed to do for it. I did all the quizzes and reviews on Rosh Reviews and I'm done. And literally... We are graduating PA school tomorrow. Tomorrow is graduation. Well, tomorrow's PA school graduation. My program splits it uh, one day, just the PA class, and then day two um, with the whole university. So uh, that's a thing, and that's happening, and it's real. And I'm proof. I am proof that if you jump through the hoops, and, and guys, it doesn't even have to be pretty. I mean, you can army crawl up to the hoop and then give your best jump up. And as long as most of your body goes through the hoop, it doesn't matter. You can tumble down on the other side of it just like I did. You too can be, uh, 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 I don't even know the word. <laughs> you, you, too, you too can be unbeautiful when you jump through all the hoops. You can do it. I'm here. I'm proof. It's done. Let's talk about some fucking surgeries. So as I just mentioned, surgery was my very last rotation. And I I can't believe I'm going to say this, but truthfully, by the end of my clinical year here, I really felt somewhat comfortable going into random places that I'd never been and feeling uncomfortable. Uh, I had gotten used. Maybe I wasn't comfortable with it, but I'd gotten used to that feeling. I'd gotten used to that feeling like an idiot. I'd gotten used to the feeling of being the newbie in the room, the new person in the room, the person that everybody's asking who you are and what you're doing there. And you kind of get this canned response of what your name is and why it is that you belong there, but only for a brief period of time. So I, I was, I didn't really do much preparing for surgery, especially since I didn't think I wanted to do surgery. So I really didn't do much preparation in order to remind me all the things about surgery. And that was a mistake (laughs) because, uh, for me, because surgery was my very last rotation, it had been literally an entire year since I had practiced scrubbing in and since I had thought about things in the OR suite that are sterile versus not sterile. And I hadn't done any suturing. Well, I take that back. I did a whole bunch of suturing on my emergency rotation, but that was rotation one. So really and truly, it had been a solid 10, 11 months since I had thought about anything uh, from the surgery world. And that was a mistake because I ended up looking like an absolute asshole for probably the first week because um, I obviously, like an idiot, uh, I didn't 
even after I made some mistakes, uh, I, I, I didn't go and, and read up on them. I totally should have. Uh, I did practice my suturing because um, I thought that is what I actually really cared if my preceptor thought I was good at or not. And that's, you know, the technique that I wanted to learn. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I get, you know, classic PA school, you only have a limited amount of time to practice one, maybe two things or to study or to review or go over or prepare in advance. Uh, and I picked suturing, um, instead of reminding myself what the things were that were sterile and not sterile in the OR. Um, so anyway, I'm here to share with you, uh, very, three very simple rules so that you don't do what I did and look like a complete asshole on your first day um, in the OR. Now, mind you, not all of the blame is on me. And I know you may be rolling your eyes, uh, but it's true. I don't know how, I don't know how it worked out, but literally my first day of my surgery rotation, my preceptor wasn't even there. She texted me the night before saying that her kiddo had gotten sick, um, but not to worry because uh, if I just showed up to the OR and asked for some nurse whose name she gave me, um, then I then this nurse would would be able to assign me to a surgeon, and then I would just be able to follow random surgeons that day. I mean, literally, this was what I walked into. Again, kind of the culmination of PA school. You just you just you get thrown to the fire, uh, baptism by fire, all the time. And uh, I had a faculty member at, like during my f during the first week of PA school two years ago say something to the effect of. After a while, you just get so exhausted from the constant beatdown that you can't even mount a response anymore of of feeling sad or overwhelmed. You just can't. Like, your, your body just can't mount a response. Uh, and I totally felt that. So, you know, just I get a text the night before that says, hey, uh, I know it's your first day of your surgery rotation at a hospital you've never been to, but here's a random list of, of names of people who you should just go around asking uh, and see if you can scrub into their surgeries. So, you know, like a dutiful PA student, I did exactly that. I showed up, wandered around, asked for some nurse, found some nurse, uh, and then they told me like, oh yeah, uh, OR2, you know, whatever surgeon's in there, go ahead and and scrub on in. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe they're going to let me do this on my own. Do you know how much of a liability I am? I mean, for real, I am, I am nobody's responsibility, but, but my preceptor and she wasn't even there. I mean, I obviously I came to find out that it was that she felt comfortable having me come in because she has a wonderful working relationship um, with the rest of her uh, colleagues and her a whole all the surgeons that she works for. She actually worked under uh, three different surgeons um, and they were all were wonderful. Every single one of them was just great. Um, and so, I, again, I, I can see why she had me come in, even though she knew she wasn't going to be there. But like. Man, you just, you just, you never know what you're going to get. But like I said, I just, I couldn't even be upset because it's just, at this point, it's just par for the course. Um, just a big steaming shit. And, you know, you just go, all right, well, I'm just going to, just going to walk around in it because, you know, that's what I got to do. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so I made a handful of mistakes and yes, part of it was my fault. I showed, I totally should have looked up some resources, 
um, watch some YouTube videos. I'm sure that exists. But, uh, you know, also I didn't, I didn't have my kindergarten teacher there with me. I didn't, I didn't have my babysitter. I didn't have my preceptor there to like give me an introduction to her OR. Um, so anyway, I don't know whether that falls under the category of a, um, what do they call that? An excuse. I happen to think it's an explanation for the idiot things I did, which I, of course, I'm going to share with you because they're hilarious. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the background. Um, oh, and also I, I was on a general surgery rotation, um, which turned out being, I mean, I absolutely adored it. And I think a huge part of that was because I really enjoyed my preceptor and then her entire team, um, with a handful of exceptions of, uh, some of the scrub techs, man, those, some of those people are just fucking miserable. Um, but anyway, obviously that's a broad statement. Anybody, anybody can be fucking miserable. Um, but, uh, generally speaking, I absolutely love the job. We were, my preceptor and I were super lucky. We didn't have to take call at all. And I had heard from a handful of my classmates who were, who did like trauma surge or neurosurge rotations. And like, they had to do call. And sometimes they were in the OR at 10 p.m. Sometimes they were in the OR at 5 a.m. And they had been at the hospital since 4 a.m. I mean, my rotate I got so freaking lucky. My rotation was absolute cush. Um, and it was, like I said, just general surgery. And general surgery is kind of a specialty on its own because all of the other specialties do their specialty surgeries. And we just kind of like end up getting like the leftovers. Like, you know, I mean, if, if any surgery, for instance, was close to the ureters, we didn't do that. The nephrology people did that. Um, we didn't do any of that surgery. Uh, uh, you know, case in point, also any any like uterine, fallopian, ovarian surgery. You know the the OB gynes do that. Or gy- gynecology does that. Uh, you know I didn't do anything in the lungs. That's that's pulmonology. I didn't do anything in the chest. That's cardiothoracic. So, but like because everybody else is so specialized, general surgery. We really just had a handful of things that we did by far. The number one surgery that I did was a cholecystectomy, meaning we took out people's nasty gallbladders. Almost all the time, they were filled with a whole bunch of stones. And the other half of the time, they were filled with stones and bile goo. And it was disgusting. Um, But like super, super satisfying to pull out of somebody's body and be like, there, I have fixed you. Uh, So cholecystectomy, huge, huge, huge on the list. And also hernias whole bunch of hernias from all over the place. Inguinals, uh, inguinals and umbilicals were the most. I think I did maybe two incisional hernias and I did not see any femoral hernias. Um, so those two hernias. And then I also did a handful of, uh, butt stuff. So like anus, uh, like anoscopies. I don't even know if that's the right word. Um, but, uh, um, stuff for like, really gnarly hemorrhoids or cancer that was low down in the rectum. Oh, oh, and we also took out um, uh, parts of the um, colon. So like if diverticulitis got gnarly, uh, we took out parts of the colon, did a whole bunch of hemicolectomies, um, even ha- even um, did some, uh, God, what's the name of that surgery where you, where you disconnect somebody's GI tract and you make them and you connect their intestines to their abdominal wall so that they poop out of the bag. Oh my God, I can't believe that just, that word has just escaped me. It'll come, it'll come to me. 
Um, but uh, I've had a couple glasses of wine today because, as I said, tomorrow's graduation. So I've had a couple glasses of wine, about ready to go meet my folks for dinner. Um, so anyway, I'll figure that word out later. Anyway, um, that was about all of the surgeries that, um, by and large, that was most of the surgeries that we did, I think. Um, I did one uh, vein ablation, like lower extremity vein ablation from some gal um, who had like var varicose veins, like pretty gnarly looking varicose veins, actually. I don't, I'm not surprised why she uh, wanted them out. Um, but that was super uncommon. Most, usually that's vascular surgery that does vein stuff. But uh, the main surgeon in my hospital had like done a fellowship or something in vascular surgery. Um, so he was, I mean, I, I guess he had privileges to do some of this kind of little you know, varicose veins kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, that's, it, I, that's what I did. That's what I spent my six weeks doing. Uh, and it was pretty cool. And of course you got a pre, pre-op and post-op. Um, but, uh, generally speaking, these were, these were the surgeries that we did. Uh, and I got super lucky that I didn't have to do any, take, take any call. Uh, and I was pretty much done at like five o'clock every day. I'm pretty sure I, I think the latest I was at in the OR was like 530. Um, so that was absolutely amazing. I just, I had a really cush, uh, a really cush surgery rotation. And because of that, I'm actually considering applying to a few surgery jobs. Um, I mean, you know, we'll see. I mean, I'm just going to cast a huge, huge net, uh, and see what I pull in. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do with these pods. We'll see if I keep you posted or not. Um, but, uh, anyway, I want to get into, um, the three rules so that you don't look like an asshole on your first day of your surgery rotation. Um, and then, uh, if we've got some time after that, I want to go over just a few of the, um, those main surgeries that I talked about, um, you know, coleolithiasis, like what is that, um, uh, diverticulitis, what does that look like? Just, I think those couple things, um, cause that is relevant to a general surgery rotation so that we can get in some sweet, sweet panic study in. Okay. Real quick, before I get into the three rules, I totally forgot to mention, I think I forgot to mention that, uh, appendicitis was a huge thing that we did in, well, appendicitis was a huge reason that we took out appendixes uh, in general surgery. So, I, I mean, I probably took out one appendix a day along with a gallbladder. Uh, I mean, that's just how it was. Like th those are the top three things that we did in the OR in general surgery were take out people's gallbladders, take out people's appendixes and fix their various uh, hernias. So, uh, so anyway, just recap on that. That's what I primarily did in general surgery. And two, uh, I wish I had remembered this on my own, but I totally had to look up the name of the thing where you, they take the either small bowel or colon and connect it to the inside of your abdominal wall. Um, and that is called um, like an ileostomy or a colostomy. Duh. So colostomy obviously is when they take the colon and hook it up to the inside of the abdominal wall and like create like a hole to the outside. I mean, that's what the word ostomy means, just a hole. Um, so a hole to the outside. And then people, of course, have to wear the colostomy bags. Um, and that's where their poop is. So they don't poop out their butt anymore. Um, they poop into the bag and have to change the bag. So that's colostomy. And then, of course, the ileostomy is just from the uh, ileum, um, uh, again, out through the stomach or out through the abdominal wall. So... 
forgot I uh, forgot those two words. Real, I've I've only been off surgery for like five days, and I'm already forgetting terminology. Um, anyway, uh, had to mention those two. But let's move on to the three rules of the OR uh, again, so that you don't look like an asshole on your first day there. Rule number one: wear the proper attire. Just wear it all the time in all the places. And the proper attire is as follows. You need the hair bouffant. Uh, some people will wear a skull cap, which is just like a cloth. Um, I, I don't know. It almost looks like a, I don't know, like a chef's hat, like a floppy, like a floppy chef's hat, like a car- shop, floppy cartoon chef's hat. Um, that's a skull cap. Apparently, that's more effective in reducing particle transmission. But the hair bouffants, which is just like a puffy blue hairnet, um, is what they have, uh, and you just the, they're disposable. So wear the hair a hair wear a hair cover, wear a surgical mask. So not one of those yellow ones that people walk around in the community with because they're afraid of SARS. I mean the legitimate surgical masks um, and shoe covers. Uh, most of my attendings did not wear shoe covers with the exception of the main surgery dude. And I took his lead and I wore shoe covers absolutely every single day. And can I tell you at least once a week, something weird splattered on me. I'm talking like whether it was the skin prep or most, most often it was somebody like disconnecting a line, like a line or a tube and whatever was in the line or tube splashed on me. I think I had even like gallbladder goo splash on my shoes before. Like, and I'm not, anyway, I, I wore shoe covers all the time and I was super happy about it. Um, but wear, wear those three things until you figure out where you don't have to wear them. Uh, Going back to the fact that I didn't have a preceptor on the first day I was there, I had absolutely no idea that past past the certain line uh, in like in in the general operating room, like hallway, even in the hallway, you're supposed to wear um, a hairnet. And I had no idea. Like I, I just I got to the hospital found the nurse who told me to change into scrubs and she showed me where to do that. So I changed into the scrubs, put the shoe covers on because like, why not? I had no idea. And then she's like, oh yeah, and we'll just have you into room OR2. And so I just like start walking to OR2 and I'm almost tackled by some other nurse who comes out of uh, some office and she's like, you need to wear this hair thing. And I was like, you know, I mean, the difference between inside voice and outside voice, you know, my inside voice is thanks for fucking telling me how the fuck was I supposed to know any of that. But of course, my outside voice was, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your help with all this. But like, fuck, how am I supposed to know? I had no idea. So anyway, now, you know, even before you go into the actual OR, at least in my hospital, I had to wear the little blue puffy hairnet. Absolutely, absolutely if I got 20 feet within the OR door. So just wear the blue puffy hairnet, wear the shoe covers because you're going to get sprayed on. Um, and then just absolutely know that if you go into the OR, you absolutely have to wear a surgical masks. So you know what? Instead of trying to keep all those three straight right now, just wear all three. Just wear all three on your first couple days until you figure out where you don't have to wear those things. That way, nobody's going to come tackling you like a linebacker outside of some nurse office. So, you know, that's a win for you. All right, that's rule number one. Uh, Rule number two, 
now that you have all of the proper things on and I'm and and I'm not going and I'm not talking about uh you're and you're about ready to head into the OR for surgery. That's totally different. I'm not even talking about scrub technique today. Go look it up on YouTube. You'll be served way better. I'm talking about you're just casually walking into the OR behind your preceptor. The patient may not even be in the room, but the second you walk in there, go over to the whiteboard and write your name on it. Now, I was told this as a student, and maybe I was told why I needed to do it, but maybe at that point, I was just like, tell me what to do, and I'll do it, and I'm so exhausted of asking why I need to do things. I'm just going to do it. The reason you need to write your name on the whiteboard is because there is a nurse who is going to be sitting at a computer in the corner of the room throughout the entire surgery that you do, and at the end of it, they need to write on the official documentation who was in the room. And so, yes, obviously there are much more important people than you in the room, but still you were in the room and you were going on the documentation. And that nurse does not, it's not that nurse's job to come over to you every single surgery and ask what your name is and how do you spell it and what your credentials are. Because I'll tell you, I saw a whole bunch of other people who were just observers in the room. And they weren't PA students. They were like NP students. They were NP new hirees. They were scrub tech students. They were nursing students. So, I mean, at least in my hospital, again, that I mean, that had um, that was a kind of like a teaching hospital. There were a ton of people in the room. So uh, don't assume that these nurses are going to keep track of who everybody is. That's not their job. Um, and so your way of announcing who you are um, and how you spell your name so that nobody has to ask on, for when they go to write it on the documentation is to just put it on the whiteboard along with your P-A-S at the end of it. Um, you know, and the nurse will find it when they get around to it because they have a million other responsibilities to do before, before and while the patient is in there. Um, the last thing they need to do is ask you how to spell your dumb name. Um, so anyway, write your name on the whiteboard immediately. Just make that a habit because I got out of the habit at the end of my clinical rotation. And yes, it's true. By that point, most of the nurses knew who I was and how to spell my name. Um, but occasionally there was a new nurse or a cover nurse or whatever. And I always felt so bad when they had to come seek me out, um, and, you know, and it's not like they can just like scream, hey, you in the OR, to that's totally inappropriate. So anyway, um, just do just do them a favor, write your name on the board. And that's why you do it. Uh, plus or minus gloves. Um, I mean, you're not sterile, right? You know, like I said, figure out how to get sterile and all that with your with your precept with your preceptor or um, YouTube. But um, for me, my preceptor was a little bit more loosey goosey um, before you get scrubbed in. Um, but you know, just for safe measure, of course, just go ahead, walk in the door, grab a pair of gloves, and then go straight to the whiteboard, you know, just do that on your, on your first couple shifts on your first week or whatever, until you figure out, you know, if they, if they really want you, um, to wear gloves when you do that. I mean, if they do fine, um, if they don't, you know, power to them as well. But, uh, so there's the whiteboard and number three, and this is, I don't know, maybe this is, this is, yeah, this is probably the most important one. Do not, do not touch anything when you get into the OR. And I'm talking whether you're sterile 
and especially if you're not sterile. Um, don't touch anything. And I'm also, by the way, not just talking about with your hands. I'm talking about your back, your shoulders, your head, and your elbows. And I specifically mention all four of those things because yours truly was the one who got into the OR and being when I was both sterile and non-sterile in some cases, touched various things with those parts of my body. And it was an absolute disaster. I mean, you want to talk about like, what's the fastest way to get a scrub tech to roll their eyes at you? Touch something that you're not supposed to touch. Um, you know, if you are un, if you are non-sterile and you touch something sterile, I mean, you could you could set the the operation back. I don't know, thirty minutes, maybe by them having to sterilize the equipment again, probably even more. Um, so, the best thing to do after you write your name on the whiteboard is to just stand out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> or ask how you can help, of course, you know, I mean, that's, we're also, you know, you're the student here, you're supposed to be learning things. So like, ask how you can help. But just if you're not doing anything, and if you're observing something, just stand and have your little protective bubble. And don't back up into anything. Be hyper aware of where the lights are. That's what I mean. Um, that's what I mean about things hanging over your head. Watch what your head's doing. There were a handful of times that the, the, um, Either the surgeon or the scrub tech moved the overhead lighting so that the surgeon could see better and 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 consequently like brought it closer to the operating table. And I'm taller than a lot of people. Um, and if I were if I went to lean in then too, I thankfully never touched my head on the um, sterile hand grips for the lights. Um, but I got close, close enough that like the scrub tech called me out a handful of times. Um, so just, it, it took me, I mean, it, it took me the full six weeks to be hyper aware of every single part of my body when I got in there. And it also took that long to realize what was sterile and what was not. Um, obviously I'd figure it out if I were there for longer and I certainly did, but I mean, it was not something that was second nature to me. Um, so that was hard. And generally speaking, if something is draped in that kind of like, OR blue color. I think it's called seal, seal blue, CL blue, C-I-E-L. I don't know. I, I know how to spell it. I don't know how to say it. But if it's in those like generic blue scrub colors, there's a good chance that it's sterile. Uh, so don't touch it because not only is the gown that you wear going to be sterile, of course, once you've scrubbed in and then the scrub tech has has put it on you and has gotten your gloves on you, the patient, of course, is going to be draped in sterile blue-colored draperies. Um, and then, of course, the scrub tech's tabled. So that's the person who's in charge of all the instruments. And I keep saying the scrub tech, the scrub tech, the scrub tech, because they are they are the soup Nazi of the OR room. They watch everyone and everything just in case somebody breaks sterile field and they will pounce on you. And if you break sterile field or you almost break sterile, sterile field, like I said, they will roll their eyes at you so quickly and they don't even care. And obviously that's a broad sweeping statement there. I had, I had probably half of my scrub tax, scrub tax were the 
most bubbly, nicest people, just there to help, just wanted to make sure that I knew what I was doing and wanted to help me. Um, but the other half of them, uh, were, I felt like they were just out to get me. They were just waiting for me to do something wrong. And I mean, I do stuff wrong all the time. Um, you know, you just kind of got to shrug your shoulders and shake it off. Um, and, and it's so true that if you're in, you know, if you hang out long enough, if your rotation is long enough, if you have enough shifts, you will, you will see somebody else break sterile field. It absolutely happens. So don't feel like, don't feel bad when you do it. You're just probably going to be the one to do it the most, but everybody has done it at some point. Absolutely. And even, I even saw the head surgeon break sterile field with his shoulder. He bumped into one of the monitors that we use for the laparoscopic um, surgeries, bumped into one of the monitors, had no idea, but guess who saw him? Our good old trusty scrub tech. And she called him out. And turns out it happens so frequently that people break sterile technique that they have like extra sleeves that they can put on you if you hit your elbow or your wrist or your shoulder and they and so instead of like having to step out of the room and scrub again or put a new gown on they just like put this sleeve on him and like he continued the surgery um so you know even even the 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 highest command surgeons um can break sterile field uh so don't feel bad if and probably when it happens to you um, it's fine. Just take rule number three to heart and just try not to touch anything. And the last story I'll tell about don't touch anything is um, I was watching my first robotic case. And the robot is neat, but you have to get special certification in order to help the surgeon run it. Uh, so obviously as students, that's not something that we're doing. We're not getting certified or anything. So it was pretty much relegated to like sitting on a stool and in the corner. Um, and usually these cases are a little bit longer. So that was a little sad, um, after I saw the first two probably, because I mean, you've seen one, sometimes you've kind of seen them all. Um, so it was a, I don't know. Anyway, uh, it is what it is, but I didn't know what the robot machine looked like. Um, I'd never seen one before. And so I got into the room before my preceptor did, and I was trying to follow my rules of don't touch anything and just be out of the way because I especially knew that I was going to observe. So I was like, I'm not doing anything here. I just like, I just need to stand against a wall. And so I had my non-sterile but gloves on, and that was it. And I was trying to back away and like try to like essentially lean against a wall. And I had no idea that I was not backing up into the wall, but I was backing up into the sterile robot. And I had no idea that the robot was sterile because it wasn't covered in the blue scrub drapes. It was covered in clear plastic as though it was just like sitting and waiting in the corner, which is exactly what it was doing. That's exactly where they put it. It's this huge machine that's, I mean, I don't know, the the size of like the front half of my car. I mean, it's just massive. Um, and it's got these huge like tentacles on them. Actually, you know, it looked like the uh, alien monster things from the War of the Worlds. If you ever saw that video, it looked like this like huge, it had like this, uh, like a bulbous, body 
and it had like f- and then four arms on it that were all like scrunched up because it was trying to be small in the corner. But and of course the the arms extend and whatnot to do surgery. Um, but and it just it just looked like like a crouching spider in the corner. I mean a massive white titanium uh, spider crouching in the corner covered in clear pa- plastic. I didn't know that that's – I mean I should have put two and two together, but I didn't. There's a lot going on in the OR, um, and I didn't put two and two together. And so the the robot machine is covered in clear plastic, not covered in scrub blue. So I had no idea that it was sterile. And again, guess who saw me taking a couple steps backwards – and I mean, she, again, I almost got tackled. Um, thankfully, I didn't touch the machine, but I absolutely would have backed up into it had it not been for the scrub tech who loved rolling her eyes at me. Um, so just general information, wrapping up statement here. Don't touch anything. Watch every single part of your body. Things that are draped in scrub blue are probably sterile, so don't touch them unless you are also sterile. And then the robot is draped in clear plastic, plastic, Uh, but it's still considered sterile, and you should absolutely not touch it. Uh, So those are my three rules so that you don't look like an asshole within your first few days um, in the OR. All right, so let's do a little bit of panic studying. And I'm going to initially and probably, actually, I'm probably only just going to cover the gallbladder stuff. So that would be um, cholelithiasis. Um, what else do I want to do? Cholelithiasis, cholecystitis, and cholangitis. I remember those things being. I mean, they were all basically they were all new words for me. And I mean, it it could have been in Italian or like Mandarin. I just I had no idea what they are. And so now that I've seen them, they are separated a little bit better in my head. But uh, um, anyway, let's let's go over those three because I remember just being super confused about those things. Um, Okay, so cholelithiasis um, is simply just a gallstone in the gallbladder. Um, Sometimes it causes problems and sometimes it doesn't. So we're going to talk about that. Um, But there's three major types of gallstones. Um, So like they can be made of different things. The actual stone itself can be made of different things. Um, But the very most common is actually a a mixed type. Um, So gallstones can either be cholesterol or they can be pigmented. Um, And again, the most most common is um, the mixed type. Um, I don't know. I saw gallbladders like small pebbles um, and like much bigger ones, like the size of like very large marbles, like or like a small ping pong ball. Even Um, most of the patients whose gallbladders we took out were just like filled. They just like they looked like a coin purse filled with um, gallstones. It was actually really, really disgusting. so uh, so anyway, so that's uh, cholelithiasis. So most common is a mixed uh, gallstone of cholesterol and pigmented. Um, and now there's, ri- there's risk factors for developing cholelithiasis, and that is uh, the, de- the mnemonic of the four Fs. Um, so the patient risk factors are going to be um, female, fertile, full-figured, previously um, known as fat that's you'll see that word um often but full figured right let's we're going to be body body image image body image positive here um and 40 
Um, so, and the fertile just means, you know, she's not like super young and she's not super old, right? You know, she's kind of in her reproductive years, years, which if you ask me is kind of similar to the final F of 40, um, but, uh, whatever, whatever. So female, full figured, fertile, and 40. Those are the four Fs, um, for risk factors of cholelithiasis. Um, and the reason we care about cholelithiasis um, is because sometimes it can lead to complications, um, such as like cholecystitis, which of course cyst or itis, right? Inflammation of whatever the thing itis is attached to. So chole um, being the secret medical word for gallbladder. So gallbladder inflammation, cholecystitis. Um, and that happens if the stone that's inside the gallbladder gets squeezed well enough or hard enough so that it actually goes into the cystic duct. So that's just the duct that's leading out of the gallbladder. Um, so if the gallstone advances into the cystic duct um, and gets gets stuck there, you can get an inflammation of the gallbladder. Um, similarly, if that stone makes it all the way through the cystic duct and gets stuck um, in the common bile duct, now we're going to call that coli docolithiasis, cholidocolithiasis. Uh, so again, that is just a gallstone that's made its way from the gallbladder into the cystic duct and out of it again and into the common bile duct. Um, uh, so that's that would be cholidocolithiasis. And then you can also get cholangitis, which is going to be the third thing we talk about today, um, and even pancreatitis. There's this kind of buzzword called um, gallstone pancreatitis. Um, so you can get pancreatitis from having a gallstone. Uh, all right. So signs and symptoms, um, cholelithiasis. So simply having a gallstone in the gallbladder you, usually doesn't cause symptoms. If the patient is having symptoms, we call that traditionally a biliary colic systems or symptoms. And this is all this is is just a, it's this the gallstone temporarily gets pushed into the cystic duct, um, and so it's a temporary obstruction of the of the cystic duct. And the pain that the patient feels is from the gallbladder contracting um, and then and building up pressure essentially because there's an obstruction in there because it can't squeeze any bile out because there's a gallstone in the way. So biliary colic is this temporary pain, and it is pretty much defined as right upper quadrant pain that often happens with meals, especially fatty foods, um, but it eventually self-resolves, like within 20 minutes, sometimes even up to a couple hours, but it's generally like after eating, the pain goes away. Um, so that is biliary colic. So if a patient has um, a stone in their gallbladder, they might have um, biliary colic symptoms. Um, and again, we're, we're going to get into cholecystitis um, and cholangitis here in a minute. But if the, if the right upper quadrant pain becomes persistent, or if now the patient has nausea or vomiting, um, then we're going to be more suspicious of an actual cholecystitis. So not temporary. Now we've a we're actually dealing with the thing. But again, we're going to get to that. Um, and then I've got a buzzword for you, the BOAS sign, B-O-A-S. The BOAS sign is simply referred pain to the right subscapular area um, because of the biliary colic. So it's kind of goes, al goes along with um, the gallstone there. Um, all right. So that's what the patient looks like. Diagnostic testing. First line diagnostic imaging um, is the right upper quadrant ultrasound. And you are looking for the presence of stones in the gallbladder. Uh, if memory serves, 
this this is only like it's like i don't know 80 percent like will it see 80 percent of gallstones so like a whopping like a, i mean a a, a a decent amount of gallstones won't be seen on um, ultrasound. Um, but you can also look for dilation of the um, biliary ducts um, if there was a stone that was moving through. Um, so, like, you can look for dilation of the cystic duct um, or of even the common bile duct to see if maybe a stone had passed through there. Um, so that is something you can see on right upper quadrant uh, ultrasound. Uh, labs that you'll see, um, the LFTs will actually be normal in just regular old cholelithiasis, um, but in cholelithiasis, so the the uh, gallstone in the common bile duct, you can actually get um, increases uh, in the alkaline phosphatase, the GGT, and the total, total bilirubin. And this just has everything to do with the anatomy. It's, it's blocking um, things that are um, coming from the liver. Um, and I'm not going to get into that. So, but anyway, that's what, that's what you can see on lab. Um, so right upper quadrant, um, uh, ultrasound is going to be, um, a good, um, first line treatment, um, or first line, uh, diagnostic test rather. Um, let's see. So if you, if you think the patient actually has, cholecystitis, right? I know we're kind of talking about, I'm just trying to just talk about cholelithiasis. Um, but if, if you think the patient has cholecystitis, meaning they're sick, um, you can actually um, do uh, an ERCP, um, which is actually both diagnostic and treatment. And I'll get to that in a quick minute. Um, but anyway, so um, how are we going to treat cholelithiasis? Well, if there's no symptoms, if it's found incidentally, like on a on an ultrasound, you actually don't need to do anything. Um, just you can announce that the patient has a gallstone, and that's kind of about it. Um, but symptomatic cholelithiasis uh, actually does require you to do something. What do you think it requires you to do? What's what rotation did I just come off of? Yeah, you got to take it out. Get that out of there. Um, so symptomatic cholelithiasis is treated um, with cholecystectomy. Um, so that is that. And then again, um, you can do the ERCP, um, which is both diagnostic, uh, and treatment. Um, if there's a stone that's blocking, uh, one of the ducts, um, because the ERC, the ERCP lets you visualize it, um, the E standing for endoscopic. Um, so you're taking a little picture and shoving it through your mouth down your, um, uh, esophagus. Um, the, that's the ERCP versus the MRCP. Um, which just is a picture. Um, so the ERCP uh, helps you diagnose and actually remove the stone if you can see it. Um, buzzword here, if you end up doing an ERCP in someone, what is a comp possible complication of that? I said it kind of at the beginning of this lecture-ish, but gallstone pancreatitis. So a patient classically is described as a patient comes in, um, you fix them with an ERCP, and then the next day they have ongoing abdominal pain. You're like, well, that's weird because I just took out your abdominal pain yesterday. Well, guess what? Now they might actually have um, pancreatitis um, from the ERCP. Um, so the gallstone itself um, can cause a pancreatitis just by being neighbors um, and anatomy, um, but also the actual act of doing an ERCP in order to Pull, pluck out uh, the gallstone um, that's moved into the biliary tree somewhere, somewhere, patients can actually develop pancreatitis from that. 
Um, so that's a buzzword. Um, and then after you do ERCP on someone, um, it's usually best to uh, just go ahead and do a cholecystectomy. Um, so that is two things that will get you a cholecystectomy. Um, it, either it's symptomatic um, and they, we just take it out because you're having pain too, mu- too many times, um, or it was so bad that the stone got stuck. Um, guess what? You just bought yourself a cholecystectomy. All right, next up, cholecystitis. So again, this is just an inflammation of the gallbladder, most commonly uh, due to a block in the cystic duct, which of course is often due to cholelithiasis. Um, And this block leads to just inflammation of the gallbladder, right? Cholecystitis. So signs and symptoms of this, again, um, patient's going to have the right upper quadrant pain that's colicky in character. Um, But the difference here is that as time goes on, um, they're going to get longer and more severe bouts of this kind of colicky pain. So, um, you know, if the patient's pain has been changing in either one of those two areas, either in um, severity or frequency, you might consider, well, maybe they're having some sort of like cholecystitis going on now. Um, Again, fatty meals and foods can um, trigger and aggravate the pain. Um, The right upper quadrant pain might radiate to the shoulder, the subscapular area. Do you remember what what fancy pants sign uh, I said that was? That was the BOAS sign, the B-O-A-S. The BOAS sign is uh, right upper quadrant pain referred to the the subscapular area. Um, And then these patients are going to be a little sick, right? We've got an itis here. We've got an inflammation going on. So how does the body respond to inflammation? Yeah, it's going to give you a fever, probably low grade. Um, There might even be some nausea and vomiting going on there. Um, So again, you know, general colic symptoms um, don't have this kind of like nausea, vomiting, and fever syndrome going along with them, right? They just kind of get some vague right upper quadra pain, and then it goes away like, you know, 20 minutes to an hour later. But And that's cholelithiasis. But people with cholecystitis are going to be a little more sick. Um, and you're going to see that. Um, on physical exam, big buzzword here is the um, uh, Murphy sign. Take a quick minute. Do you remember what the Murphy sign is? This is when you are pressing into their right upper quadrant and you ask them to take a breath and they can't do it or it's or it's painful or they stop breathing. So they so you're you're in there, you're shoving down um, and you ask them to take a breath in and they start the breath, but they have to stop short because of pain or they can't even do it at all. So it's the Murphy sign is cessation of inspiration with palpation of the right upper quadrant due to pain. Um, So that's our friend, the Murphy sign. Uh, Again, Murphy sign going along with cholecystitis. Um, So diagnostic tests, what are we going to do for cholecystitis? Well, as cholelithiasis, first line line imaging is a right upper quadrant ultrasound. Um, You might see the the gallstones in there, um, but buzzwords here are going to be thickening of the gallbladder wall or pericholecystic fluid. So two buzzwords for cholecystitis on ultrasound, thickening of the gallbladder wall or pericholecystic fluid. Um, That along with Murphy sign uh, should make you think of cholecystitis. Um, Now, gold standard diagnostic test, um, if the ultrasound is uncertain, um, but the symptoms are highly suggestive or you're wondering if maybe they have an acalculus cholecystitis, which pretty much only happens in people who have been like on TPN or so, um, 
gold standard is the HIDA scan. And oh my God, can I pronounce that for you? Hepatoimmunodiactic. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. HIDA scan, H-I-D-A. HIDA scan um, is actually the gold standard. Um, and again, we're going to do that um, if the right upper quadrant um, ultrasound is normal, but we suspect cholecystitis anyway. Um, of note, uh, another buzzword here is a porcelain gallbladder. So you might see that um, on the, uh, ultrasound or uh, ultrasound or CT scan, uh, porcelain gallbladder, which is um, like when the when the outside of the gallbladder just kind of like lights up brightly, um, it looks like calcified. It like lights up like that, um, and this is in this is indicative of chronic chronic cholecystitis, um, which is actually a pre malignant condition. And I had forgotten that. So chronic cholecystitis goes along with cor- porcelain gallbladder, um, and this is pre malignant. Um, so that's not good. Um, all right. So treatment. How are we going to treat cholecystitis? Um, most often, we just need to take out the um, gallbladder. Um, usually anymore, this is um, performed laparoscopically, so laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Um, complications. So what happens if we don't take out the gallbladder or if the gallbladder, if the cholecystitis just gets super um, uh, more uh, sick? Um, the most, compl- most common complication of acute cholecystitis, if you do not treat it, is gallbladder gangrene, uh, which sounds absolutely terrible. And I probably saw some of that uh, in my surgery rotation, probably even had gallbladder gangrene goo flicked on my shoes. Uh, Actually, not my shoes, my shoe covers. Um, So, and that can happen, let's see, seven to 10 days after symptoms started. So, we need, we need to fix these folks' gallbladders like within seven to 10 days. Otherwise, they risk um, uh, gangrene, getting a gangrenous gallbladder. Um, and this happens in up to 20% of cases that go untreated. Um, so that was cholecystitis. Last up, cholangitis. Um, and this is the worst of the three, um, meaning the patients are the most sick. Um, and this is an ascending infection of the biliary tree most commonly due to a blockage of the common bile duct. So I just said a lot of words there. Well, what do I mean? Ascending, meaning the problem is a little bit lower, but shit just gets backed up. And so things just start getting infected, right? I mean, the body likes to keep things moving. Anytime we have something just sitting there, you are at risk for like clots or infections. Um, So if we've got a blockage somewhere, shit is going to stand still and get infected or turn or make clots. Um, so that's why it's an ascending infection. Um, the, the issue gets worse backed up. Um, and again, this is caused, like I said, this is caused by, um, blockage of the common bile duct. So what would that be? Would that be cholecystitis or cholecystitis? It would be cholecystitis, P-A-K. Good job, guys. You did it. Okay. Um, so cholangitis, uh, again, most commonly caused by cholecystitis docolithiasis, but it can also be caused by um, biliary strictures, so d- strictures that just happen in the ducts, um, or even um, tumors and, and uh, masses, both benign and malignant. But most common cause of cholangitis, cholidocolithiasis. Um, and then what are we going to get infected with? Um, most commonly E. coli, enterococcus, um, Klebsiella, but um, I don't know, probably the um, enterococcus and E. coli, I think, are, oh, well, Klebsiella too. 
Anyway, those are the pathogens. All right, signs and symptoms. Here's some buzzwords coming at you. Um, signs and symptoms. Charco triad. Charco triad. What are the three things? I know you've known this at some point. What are they? Three things in Charco triad of cholangitis. Fever, jaundice, and what have we been talking about this whole time? What does everybody have? Right upper quadrant pain. So fever, jaundice, right upper quadrant pain. These things are Charcot's triad. Um, and the jaundice, don't forget, I mean, yes, our skin gets jaundice, but our eyes can also get jaundice. Um, and, and we have a fancy word for that because, of course, we do. Um, and that's called scleral icterus. Um, so, so Charcot triad are what? Fever, jaundice, including the eyes, and right upper quadrant pain. Now, guess what happens? A patient can come in with that. And by the way, apparently that is present in over half of the cases with cholangitis. But if we add two other things, we're going to turn this triad into a real party. We're going to turn it into Reynolds Pentad. So the two additional features that we can have are... Uh, hypotension and altered mental status. So, Charcot triad, fever, jaundice, including the eyes, and right upper quadrant pain, Charcot triad. Add two more things to make it who's pentad? Reynolds pentad. Reynolds pentad has Charcot's triad plus AMS and hypotension. Um, and again, uh, the, the Reynolds pentad, of course, represents a more serious case of the infection of cholangitis, which, of course, is the most serious one that we've been talking about this whole time. Um, so that's not great. Um, and because of that, if we don't acutely and emergently deal with this cholangitis, the patient can become septic and die. Um, so cholangitis, it, uh, we don't mess around with it. Now, what are we going to do? Well, what was first-line testing and all of the things we talked about today? Right upper quadrant ultrasound. Um, if the patient is stable, okay? So if your patient is stable, but we're still thinking they're pretty sick, you can still get the right upper, uh, right upper quadrant ultrasound. Um, and you may see dilation of the biliary tree there. Um, you may even see a stone in there. Um, now, if you don't see anything or if you're unsure... Um, you can actually move on to the MRCP, um, but that, again, is just a picture. It's like an MRI picture. Um, so that's just, that's just for looking. It's not going to treat anything. Um, let's go back. Let's, let's say that the right upper quadrant ultrasound shows dilation of the biliary tree, and we're like, oh, my God, this patient has cholangitis. Um, if that happens, go straight to the ERCP. Do not do the MRCP. Do not pass go. Go straight to jail. Uh, ERCP jail. Um, so if you got a positive right upper quadrant ultrasound on your patient with suspected cholangitis, you pretty much said, we've got cholangitis here. Go straight to the ERCP. Help them. Um, so again, remember that the ERCP is both diagnostic and treatment because you can grab um, the blockage um, and then therefore um, get the um, biliary tree to decompress. Um, uh, another, another way you would go straight to ERCP is if the patient straight up just came in with Charcot's triad. So which one was Charcot's triad? What do you, what, what was it? Fever, 
jaundice, including the eyes, and right upper quadrant pain. So if your patient comes in with those three things, clinched it straight to the ERCP to diagnose and treat. Um, let's see, labs, not, I mean, leukocytosis, right? These people are going to be sick, elevated billy. How else did you get them jaundiced? Um, you're going to piss off the liver. So ALT and AST are going to be up there. We're going to have, um, inflammation going on. So two generic inflammation markers. What do you think could be up? ESR, CRP. Um, I mean, you could even piss off the pancreas and get an elevated lipase in there. Um, but generally speaking, you're going to see leukocytosis and probably elevated bilirubin um, again because you got jaundice there. Um, so treatment to these people, treatment treatment for these folks is hospital admission. These people are sick. We need to treat them with IV antibiotics, um, Ampergent, um, Cipro. Um, ceftazidime, um, and metronidazole. Those are some good options. Um, want to help control their pain and give them IV fluids. Uh, also some definitive treatment, ERCP or not definitive, but, um, you want to remove the obstruction. So ERCP to get that stone out of there. Um, you can even put like a stent in. Um, I don't have too much more information and I'd kind of forgotten that that was a thing. I never put, I mean, not me personally, but I was never in a surgery where we put stents in these people. Um, but I don't know, maybe it happens more often than I know. But again, um, as with um, the cholecystitis, um, after you stabilize your patient and use the ERCP to get the block out of the way, um, these patients should have a cholecystectomy. I mean, like, they're, they're probably going to get sick again. Um, their gallbladder is not happy. So just take it out so it never happens again. Um, and that, my friends, was gallbladder stuff. So we did it. Thanks for hanging in there. And I hope you learned some stuff because I sure did. All right. Well, that will do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for being here and listening to me ramble on. It really, really, really does warm my heart to see uh, all the people who tune in. So thanks. Um, all right. Well, that's it. Um, and since I am done, and like I said, graduating tomorrow. In fact, we had a graduation party last night. And I don't know if you can tell, but my voice is a little raspy from shouting all night. Uh, just, you know, you, ha- you got a party, man. Uh, you just, you got a party. Um, so I'm going to continue probably with some of this panic studying stuff, um, and I'm going to try to get another episode out about um, Things I Wish I Had Known Part 3 now that I'll be done with PA school. um, I mean, essentially, I'm done now, um, but I've got two days of graduation stuff, so um, plan to get you some... Things I Wish I Had Known Part 3, and then some more panic studying because I'm taking the boards in like, I don't know, two and a half weeks. It's crazy. Uh, All right. That's all for now. See you, dudes.